you're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. No jokes. In episode 16, the Chasmosaurs team forgoes convention so that all three of us may eagerly crowd around the Chasmosaurs cauldron with our guest science writer, Riley Black. Stay tuned for our conversation and our thoughts on Riley's forthcoming book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Hopefully, we won't have spoiled the broth. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art subject this month is Bernard Robinson's illustrations for the simply titled Dinosaurs, adapted by Ben Embalio from Colin Douglas's original text and published by Ladybird in 1988. But first, uh, sailing in with surprising dispatch. No, not a certain theropod who's been much hyped about again these last few days. Perhaps you can enlighten us, Niels. Yes. Uh, well, we were sort of spoiled for choice this month, weren't we, when it came to news? Last month, we just missed the uh, splitting of Tyrannosaurus, which is uh, highly controversial. Uh, there's been some stuff with Spinosaurus, but I think we've talked enough about Spinosaurus. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk with you about uh, one of my favorite dinosaurs, actually, which is Amargosaurus. You know Amargosaurus, right? It's a smallish dicreosaurid sauropod from the early Cretaceous, Argentina, um, known for its unusual elongated spines pointing upwards from the neck. Over the years, those have been interpreted in several different ways. The uh, traditional way it was depicted was with a Spinosaurus or Uranosaurus-like sail on the back of its neck, um, though the spines were paired up, so it's a, it's a double sail. Uh, later, there were suggestions of it supporting some sort of hump, or that the spines were covered in keratin and protruded like horns. Now, a new paper by Ignacio Cerda et al. delves into these structures, compares them to the osteology of similar structures in other animals that bear horns and sails. They conclude that the spines were probably not covered in keratin, so they weren't horns. Uh, there was also no analogy found to fatty humps or lumps, but the spines do seem to support ligaments of some kind. The authors go on to conclude that the presence of a cervical sail, similar to that of Spinosaurus, but doubled up, is the most likely appearance for Amargosaurus after all, at this point. Back where we started. Hey, we're back where we started. And all those late 90s reconstructions of Amargosaurus might have been accurate after all. Um, as a footnote, the authors assume the same for Amargosaurus's even more peculiar cousin, Bahadasaurus, on the basis of parsimony, though they haven't looked at Bahadasaurus itself. The paper was published in the Journal of Anatomy. It is regrettably uh, behind a paywall, so you can go and read the abstract on the podcast show notes. So yeah, the evidence points in that direction, and we're just going to have to get over it and start drawing them with... Big old sails again. Big old sails again. And I'll have to throw out all my um, all my toys. So, anyone wants some toys? Then you know they're all gonna have to go in the bin yeah. now. That's it. I'm gonna burn them all. No, no, you can customize them, Mark. There is no need to throw <laughs> anything away. I'm obviously kidding. I, I love obsolete toys. <laughs> I mean, I've got tons of them. Yeah, but I think I think the sail is what looked best on it anyway. I think so. Perhaps, although, um... especially if it's going to be some sort of display structure, so you can go ahead and make it nice and brightly colored. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know. I did love the image of Bahadosaurus um, striking its neck spines down into some poor theropod, even though it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I never bought that for a second. Nah. Did you? No, not really. I, I never actually heard that hypothesis at all, actually. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, thank you, Niels. Um, Mark. You're welcome. Uh, a new armoured tank of the welcome kind from you. Uh, an early Theriophron and its implications? Yes. Here we have a new early branching armoured dinosaur from the Lower Jurassic of southwestern China by Shi Yao et al., published in eLife on the 15th of March. And one of the authors, by the way, was a certain Paul Barrett, who I think we are all very familiar with from reading lots of old dinosaur books. Um, and yeah, it's a description of uh, Yushisaurus Kopchikai, which is named after where it's found, um, Yushi, Yushi Prefecture, rather, and Dr. J. Kopchik, um, if that is how you say it. Apologies to Dr. John, if I've got it wrong. But anyway, he's a molecular biologist, um, quite well known. So 
the animal lived in the early Jurassic about 180, 190 million years ago. Um, more or less, I said a similar sort of time to some other similar animals like uh, Scalidosaurus, Scutellosaurus, and Emalosaurus. Emalosaurus? Whatever. That one from Germany. Um, <laughs> there's, unlike some of those others, not a huge amount of this animal has been found. I mean, a significant amount of it, but not as much as some of the other um, aforementioned. So we have bits of the skull and vertebrae, neck vertebrae, spine, um, bits of both limbs, especially the forelimbs, and of course, um, some spiky armoured bits sort of disassociated. Um, although, even though, you know, it's not by no means a complete skeleton at all, I mean, it's fairly typical for a dinosaur, really. But what's been recovered is enough to come to some conclusions about its anatomy. And they've determined that it's quite a bit chunkier than any of the dinosaurs I've already mentioned. Um, than say right. Scalidosaurus and Scutellosaurus. Despite being a similar age, it's more robust. Um, the skull is bigger, wider, and they the authors describe the animal's limbs as being much more robust than those of uh, Scalidosaurus specifically. So yeah, they were. It's quite heavy set for such an early Thoriophoran, uh, Thoriophoran, <laughs> and um, it indicates they got quite chunky quite early on. Um, the other sort of uh, key takeaway from this is that the early distribution of thoriophorans they were more widespread than was necessarily previously known uh, there were a few very fragmentary elements found from china before which were given names even though they really shouldn't have been <laughs> see authors mentioned because they were way too they just weren't <laughs> diagnostic at all um but this is the first you know good skeleton uh, that proves thoriophorans were in east asia at that time already so as they say um it further highlights that they achieved a global or at least Pandorasian distribution rapidly during their early history, perhaps in the space of two to three million years. So, yeah, it really indicates that they spread quite far and did rather well in a short space of time. So it's definitely, um, yeah, definitely something uh, something good about the Thoriophoran body plan. <laughs> they did survive right up until the end. So, um, yeah, mm. being, a, being a squat and heavy and having lots of armour um, actually suits suits animals rather well it seems although of course um couldn't protect them from the asteroid no <laughs> sorry ankylosaurus sadness oh you know, we'll get to the asteroid yeah we'll get to the asteroid later with riley one other thing um yeah it's the only basically the only early thoriophoran of this age outside of europe and north america unless you consider lesothosaurus and uh, laquintosaurus to be thoriophorans very very early ones which some people do and some people don't right. and the discussion and cladistic analyses about this in the paper um but yeah they're they're a bit more they're a bit more debatable <laughs> than obviously things like scutellosaurus which clearly is one so yeah that, that was interesting to me actually i wasn't i hadn't, wasn't aware of that i wasn't aware that the sothosaurus um had been considered a potential uh very early armor-free thoriophoran sort of stem thoriophoran no neither was i um, really yeah and actually by a few different authors as well <laughs> shows what we know so <laughs> Yeah, that was interesting in itself. Uh, but yeah, this this is unambiguously one, of course, and from China and early Jurassic, and it just proves that they were spread further afield than was previously thought. Thank you, Mark. And finally, allow me to transport you to my native soil, at country level at least, if not a region, for this month's last news item. Uh, a new paper by Sita Manitkun et al. describes the fossil assemblage from the Kokpa Swum locality of northeastern Thailand, an overview of vertebrate diversity from the early Cretaceous Kokruat formation. Uh, from the paper, the Kokpa Swum locality in the province of Ubon Rajatani, northeastern Thailand, is known as the last home of Thai dinosaurs because it belongs to the Aptian to Albion stages of the lower Cretaceous Kokruat formation currently the youngest Mesozoic vertebrate fossil producing formation in the Korat group. The vertebrates found at Kokpa Suam comprise five taxa of hybridon sharks, at least two taxa of Ginglimodians, which are a clade of ray-finned fish containing modern-day gars and relatives, uh, a cynomaeid fish, uh, caretochelid and adochid turtles, neosuchian crocodiliforms, pterosaurs, and of course, dinosaurs, which include iguanodontians, sauropods, and at least two taxa of theropods. And uh, just to highlight these dinosaurs and pterosaurs, there are 
sauropodes reminiscent of Puyangosaurus sirintoni, a basal titanosauriform from the nearby Saukua formation. There are allosauroid and spinosaurid teeth, and the allosauroid teeth resembling the basal carcharodontosaurian Siam raptor suati, and the spinosaurid teeth, according to the paper, are categorized in two submorphotypes, with submorphotype 2 being similar to Siamosaurus sutitoni. And there are iguanodontian teeth, resembling those of Sirintona coratensis and other isolated vertebrae and limb bones of an indeterminate iguanodontian. And lastly, there are pterosaur teeth, which are probably related to ornithochiroids. And as I said, these are just the dinosaurs and pterosaurs, which my own bias has selected as examples. But as you heard from the abstract, there is so much more. In short, although many of the remains are so fragmentary as to make assigning some of the animals at genus level uh, extremely difficult for the present, the most significant aspect here is, of course, the sheer wealth of vertebrate diversity in the region. A diversity which, uh, to my very great shame, I was never fully aware of until now, and which I think deserve not to be overshadowed by the formation superstars of the paleontological world, so to speak. Uh, the paper, which of course details all the discovered taxa, including the named and the tentatively assigned, is published by Pensoft and is open access. Hey. They can throw a party in Krumtep, Mahanakon, Amon, Ratan, Nakosin, Well done, Niels. Thank you. Yes. Oh, I've forgotten about that. I mean, it's not quite the. It's not quite the right region, but we certainly can celebrate it just because um, uh, the, the Isan, the northeastern region, is, is so much, well, it's, it's a lot richer in fossil um, discoveries than, than I had hitherto realized. So, yes, I think this uh, is very much a cause for national celebration. So, yes, we can very well celebrate in Grunteb as well. <laughs> Used conspicuously shorter name. I have, yes, yeah. uh, on purpose. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, right, on to our vintage dinosaur art discussion. Vintage dinosaur art. Bernard Robinson's illustrations for the 1988 Ladybird book, Dinosaurs. Um, Mark, the title is almost something of a misnomer, really, as the book covers the very beginnings of life on Earth and continues well after the dinosaurs onto uh, some Cenozoic mammals, uh, at least in broad strokes, um, since it is aimed for children. Yes, that's right. I should point out as well that this, obviously, this is a 1988 edition that we're looking at here, which is the one I obviously grew up with. Uh, there is an older version as well. Um, from I think 1974, which has a different cover. It's got the allosaur that features inside on the cover, whereas this has a T-Rex battling a Triceratops that isn't anywhere inside. It's uh, complete, as far as this book oh, goes, right. it's a completely unique right. illustration. But yes, sorry, as you were saying, it um, it does indeed go from the dawn of life all the way through to the Cenozoic and even humans hunting mammoths at the end. All honorary dinosaurs, a lot of them. Yes, but the dinosaurs obviously a much snappier title. Um, so, and in particular, of course, the Ladybird books like this are aimed at very young children who are learning to read. So that title, Dinosaurs, is nice and short and snappy and easy. It's a single word. Whereas if it was Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals, The Complete History of Life on Earth, blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah, it, it would be too long, I guess. <laughs> yeah, too much for the kids to cope with for very, yes. for very young children. Um, I mean, yeah, you'll notice inside that all the... Uh, yeah, it's all large font and short sentences and keeping everything nice and simple. It is aimed at very young children. But a lot of people, I mean, in the UK especially, but I'm sure it's published elsewhere, uh, a lot of people grew up with this in both the 70s, 80s, and as I said, the 90s, um, my case. And so very fond memories of these illustrations. Um, they are conspicuously retro by modern standards, but Bernard Robinson... Well, yes, but now that you've mentioned that the images originally come from the mid-70s, that makes, makes a sense. lot more sense yeah. to me. <laughs> makes more sense, right? Yes. Yeah, they are very. They make more sense as coming from the seventies. If you think about it that way, um, they date to that time. So yes, for the seventies, they're not so bad. For the eighties, for the late eighties, they have dated quite considerably. Um, but Bernard Robinson was an absolutely fantastic wildlife artist. You can probably tell looking at these. Well, you say a lot of people grew up with this book. I didn't grow up with this book in particular, but I definitely uh, grew up with lots of Bernard Robinson and. I really recognize his hand in this. Mm. Yes, you'll, 
the style is instantly recognisable, especially the very finely detailed scaly skin and all the animals, which I always found really fantastic. Yes, that's right. It's also the thing that uh, John Sibick, Take a Drink, is well known for, but he does it in a completely different way. That's right, yes. Yes, John Sibick's more sort of leathery skin a lot of the time, especially in his 80s stuff. I mean, later on he became more scaly and then obviously feathery, but his, uh, his 80s stuff, the skins are often a bit odd to my eye. Like they're... Um, as I said, kind of leathery and they have these big um, rectangular scales in odd places. Whereas Bernard Robinson's skin patterns are very, they very, consist of very small, non-overlapping pebble-like scales, which is what dinosaurs kind of had. Mm. So uh, he's yes. got one up on um, Civic in that respect, at least. Um, I mean, and if you look at that cover for a start, I mean, even more so than the art that appears inside, just look at the fantastic scaly textures. Yeah, I'm kind of assuming that the cover comes from a later date than the rest of the book, because... This is much more recognizable to me as the more mid to late period Robinson that I'm more familiar with. It's quite possible. Yeah. But then the T-Rex on the cover also differs quite considerably from the one inside the book. So I, I tend to agree with Niels there that, that that might have come from a later date. It, yeah, I think so too. The T-Rex does resemble more um, some of his art that appeared in things like the, what's it called, the St. Michael Marks and Spencer dinosaur book, and even later reprinted in the early issues of Dinosaurs magazine. Dinosaurs magazine, yes. Dinosaurs. I mean, I, I owned a pair of 3D glasses that were not yeah. very dissimilar to this T-Rex. No, exactly. That's another Bernard Robinson. That was a, Obviously, they uh, kind of sh- truncated the legs to make those 3D glasses, but it's recognizably a Bernard <laughs> Robinson T-Rex. But anyway, we're not talking about that. Uh, we're talking about this book. So let's go back to this book. As I said, a lot of it, a lot of the animals in here are retro, and yeah, for the eighties especially, for the seventies perhaps not so much. Uh, the T Rex, the, the Tyrannosaurus, sorry, great Paul, the Tyrannosaurus inside <laughs> is a perfect example of that. In that it's, um, yeah, just just look at it, proper, proper upright Godzilla pose. It's not quite dragging its tail, but that head and neck look a bit absurd. Um, it does, it does look quite Godzilla esque again. Absolutely fantastic detailing on the thing. The skin, um, it really feels like you can reach out and touch it. <laughs> and it have this uh, dry, scaly texture. It's absolutely fantastically done. But yes, it's it's retro. I mean, it's just about short of dragging the tail, but it has got sort of uh, small muscles, although seemingly not small as the one on the cover. But yeah, weird upright stance. Very, very strange neck. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that seems at odds with how a t-rex neck actually looks but that was obviously quite common for the time so yeah that's one of the ones and then there are some others that are obviously sort of based on works by burian and others neve parker especially burian i mean the i think the styracosaurus yeah if you look at styracosaurus that is very recognizable yeah the apatosaurus that is very burian yeah the polycanthus is somewhat neve parker-ish but then i don't think many people had attempted to reconstruct it at that point i mean this comes back to what we were saying was it last time about Acanthopolis? How Neve Parker's reconstruction appears even in books with much more modern uh, takes on ankylosaurs in it because it was the only time anyone had bothered to reconstruct it. And everyone yeah. just copied it. So that's going on here as well. Some of the some of the non-dinosaurs, like I want to highlight the Dimetrodon in particular as being an interesting one. Unusually upright, especially for the time. Yeah, it is. It is. Yes. Trotting along very nicely. There's, yeah. um, I think, a hint of Komodo dragon in its body. There is, isn't there? Yeah. I hadn't really occurred to me that. But yeah, it's, it's quite sort of lizardy. But then at the same time, its legs aren't sprawling out in the way that lizards would. And indeed, most contemporary Domitron reconstructions did. It's yeah, more upright, which is really interesting. And I'm wondering where that's come from, um, why it isn't sprawling. Unfortunately, Romus is not around to ask anymore, but we can guess. Um, and even the tail is up in the air, which is surprising. Um, very, very unusually active Dimetrodon. It does contrast actually with quite a few of the other reconstructions in here that are more static. A, a lot of this, I mean, it is basically just an, a kind of identity parade type book. If you look at things like um, Hypsilophodon and Iguanodon, Hypsilophodon, by the way, looking rather Neve Parkerish, although thankfully not in a tree. Yeah, and the Iguanodon, very, very Bodian. Yeah, but they're just standing around, not really doing anything, um, munching on some plants, but they're very static. Um, I do want to say, though, about the Iguanodon, although it is um, very static, as you say, and it is in uh, a kangaroo pose, um, it is nevertheless um, really beautiful, I think. It... Um, uh, 
it's it's beautifully painted and it has this air of of gracile solidity which is so characteristic of onithopods so even though it's its stance is incorrect it's still um it still has something of its nature about it which which i really admire that's a good point yeah and solidity in particular i mean solidity is a key word when it comes to all of his work um it's they're so yeah absolutely technically accomplished and everything feels absolutely Everything has presence and everything feels, as you say, well, solid. Um, if you look at the mm. Triceratops, for example, um, the shading there, it, it looks heavy. It's beautiful. And the, massive. The Triceratops. Yeah. And I love the um, this bony sort of or scaly nodules going down its back. Oh, it's like osteoderms. Mm. Which, it um, also reminds me of the, the Invicta model for the Natural History Museum. Uh, I don't know... Which came first, and whether its appearance is based on something else that came before it, but um, but that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, it reminds me of a model that's in the museum itself uh, that used to be sort of presented alongside the the oh, weird mount they've got there. That's right. Yeah, the hunchback mount they have over there. Yeah, of course, I'd forgotten about that. Oh, and a dinosaur that definitely needs mentioning in here, um, Archaeopteryx, because uh, Robinson was really rather good at Archaeopteryx. Yes, as is evidenced here. Yeah, it's yes. not too bad, is it? It's yeah. It. I mean, the most notable thing about it is, if you look at particularly the individual on the right-hand side, its hands are incorporated into its wing. You know, like they actually were. I was about um, to mention that exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I always look for in in Archaeopteryx uh, reconstructions. Mm. It is sort of in that classic Knightian Archaeopteryx pose, seen from the back, yeah. wings outstretched, perched from a tree mallard colors right yeah almost but as such <laughs> one of the best of its kind yes yeah it's just not a freakish lizard bird hybrid monster with little fingers sticking off its wrists you know like so many of them have been over the years it actually looks like a feathered animal <laughs> it's like a perfectly natural looking feathered yeah. animal which it's nothing to be sniffed at because, as I said, a surprising number of artists over the years have just turned into this hybrid freak because, oh, it's a reptile and, oh, it's a bird at the same time. and uh, Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that it actually became worse as the, the 80s and 90s progressed with it becoming more of a, an ugly snake bird. <laughs> if you look at the classic paleo arts that this is very much indebted to, Archaeopteryx tends to look a lot nicer with people like Burian and Knight uh, reconstructing it in a much more nice, naturalistic way, like you see here. Yes, you're right. Yes, I suppose so. Yes. There's less of an emphasis on it being some halfway house hybrid thing and more on it being an, just a natural animal that lived. <laughs> no, not was it so. Right. A, a feathered animal. Uh, I think he does a really good job here. And there are a few other places as well, a few other books where he um, illustrates Archaeopteryx and does an equally good job, even if, he, as you say, the pose is rather cliched <laughs> but uh, you can't escape that pose it's inevitable i i just want to, to put in a word for the poor hadrosaurs um which i must admit to being rather saddened by <laughs> <laughs> saddened. Um, because <laughs> saddened yes um well because uh, in contrast to to its ornithopodian kin the uh, the beautiful um iguanodon the, uh, the hadrosaurs once again suffer as something um, that seem almost to have been treated as an afterthought, um, you know, alongside their reputation as being uh, these strange duck-like creatures. Um, so they have they have none of the the presence of that iguanodon, um, and they just look well disappointing uh, to, to me at least. Um, which is a shame because um, whatever the correctness of all the other animals, the, the others at least had, um, as we were talking about, a, a great presence and, and something very distinctive and, and admirable about them. But, but the hadrosaurs just pale uh, altogether by comparison. So I'm a, I'm a little sad. Oh dear. To see them like this. Does that Anatosaurus have opposable thumbs? It does look a bit like That's it. It's so it? strange. Mm. <laughs> it does look like it has an opposable did it looks like almost like it has That's human a arms. Very humanoid hand, isn't it? Yeah, the more Extremely, I look at it, the more yes. disturbing it gets, actually. It's quite upsettingly humanoid, but with sort of semi webbed fingers. Yeah. Don't like it. I'm not gonna look at it anymore. 
Oh, now I've turned back to the sauropods. I don't really like them either. Let's let's turn yeah. the page. Let's go to the sauropods. Let's have some nice dinosaurs. Well, no, as I said, I'm not really that big a fan of the sauropods in here either. But mostly because, again, they're pretty derivative, especially the Apatosaurus in the background being obviously um, Burian's Brontosaurus, um, complete with the yeah. mismatch head. <laughs> so. They're also characterized in the text as um, as gentle plant eaters that lived in herds for protection. Um, I know this gets up your nose quite a bit, Mark, these days. What, the gentle plant eaters thing? Because, yeah, all plant eaters... The gentle plant eater part, yeah. You mean like rhinos or buffalo, gentle plant mm. eaters like that? Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, although... As... Or elephants, heaven forbid. In a book for very young children, when you're teaching them about carnivores and herbivores, I suppose it's fine to say that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, of we haven't course. got any, we haven't got know. any room for nuance here, <laughs> basically. But I, know, actually, I know. Yeah, we're getting the idea that they just weren't hunting down other dinosaurs. Um, whereas, yeah, what does it say about Allosaurus again? There's Allosaurus, which is okay. It's kind of obviously very seventies and it's um, somewhat retro, but and it's kind of. But again, it has that nice solidity to it um, and really wonderful. I like skin. that Allosaurus. Yeah. There is something about it, isn't there? Yeah, I like it um, for, all, mm, for, all, for all those reasons. And also, it, uh, I mean, certainly when compared to the T-Rex, uh, the Allosaurus just win, uh, wins oh, miles ahead. Yeah, it's miles you know, it, Yeah, uh, And also in the case of Allosaurus, uh, with this Allosaurus, I am not immediately going, oh, this was based on that. This was based on Knight. This was based on Parker. This was right. based on Burian. Yeah, this seems original. to be uh, a wholesale original creation, and I always respect that. Yeah, yes, that's always that's always a good thing. Um, oh, by the way, in the text it says its mouth opens so wide that it could swallow small swallow small animals whole. So there you go. Um, but yeah, other than that, as, as we've said, it has a nice solidity presence. It's not obviously derivative. Um, it looks convincing as an animal, and that's. There, Robinson's background as a wildlife artist comes through because I've always found that wildlife artists, um, even if they're not necessarily dinosaur specialists, which I pre- pre- presumably wasn't mm. at that time, although he'd go on to do quite a few dinosaur things. Yeah, he became one in the end. Yeah. <laughs> although uh, it's clear they're not dinosaur specialists, and the anatomy of the animals is off in various different ways that you pick up on if you, you know, are a dinosaur nerd of some sort. That nevertheless, the animals look kind of convincing as animals, and they fit together. It's not like um, you're wondering where their shoulders are, or you know they seem to be missing key parts of their skeleton. Um, they, they they do look like they fit together and could exist, which is um, yeah something I said I often find with wildlife artists, which Robinson was. There's one more animal that is staring me in the face here on page forty six, and that would be the uh, Uintathir. The Uintathir. And this one highlights sort of ah, the yes. general Uintathir problem, as in, dude, this is a rhino with a weird head. <laughs> that does, yeah, that is just a rhino with a weird head, yeah. Well, it's a very beautifully done rhino. Um, very beautifully painted rhino. <laughs> yes, it is. It took basically <laughs> until now for paleo artists to recognize that, you know, Uintatherium probably was not quite a rhino with not, a weird head. Not quite. There is no particular reason for it to look like a rhino, but every single paleo artist in history makes it look like a rhino. And I have to say, this one looks very, very much like a rhino. Yes. yes. Yeah. Again, um... showing off his talents as a wildlife artist, making a very convincing looking, slightly odd rhino. It's a very beautiful painting of a rhino. <laughs> of a rhino with a strange head. Yeah, yeah, with some deformities. And tusks. Big tusks. Sorry, that, that was a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Yes, we shouldn't be too critical <laughs> because obviously uh, we'll be ruining everyone's childhood again. But yes, this is a um, very lovely book, very accomplished illustrator, um, much loved through the years. Oh, by absolutely. Yeah, generations yeah. of children, um, me included. E- even as a kid in the 1990s, it seemed a bit dated to me, um, which it kind of was because it dated back to the 70s. Uh, nevertheless, I was impressed even back then by the quality of the arts and you know how technically accomplished it is. And yeah, yeah. In that respect, it has stood the test of time, and it's still um, good fun to go back and have a look through. And you can, and it's still, it can still be admired to this day. I think. Oh yes, completely. I think, for my part, I see this as the uh, Norman Pedia for Bernard Robinson, as in, this is where he started, and from here he would get better. That's a good comparison. Yes, I'm not sure we did start with this, but we'll go with that. <laughs> I can't be bothered to do the research now, so we'll just go. Well, with it, that. it needn't be it needn't be his starter in in strict terms, but just something that was well publicized, well known, 
yes so um i think yeah yeah it's his best known or one of his best known works this because so many people so many kids came into contact with it um yeah especially british kids <laughs> that it's among his best known works so in that, in that sense it is very much like the normanpedia which came to define civic for quite some time and yeah although yes. unlike the normanpedia the stuff in here wasn't copied ad nauseum again there's there's that presence there is that tangibility you could just reach out and give the t-rex a pat on its back <laughs> yes Now, I relish every opportunity I get to say that any guest of ours needs no introduction. And such is the case once more with Riley Black, one of the most prolific and beloved writers of the Paleosphere. Riley has written extensively for such publications as Wired, National Geographic, and Scientific American. And her books, such as Written in Stone, My Beloved Brontosaurus, Skeleton Keys, and the forthcoming The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, are but a fraction of her achievements. We are so delighted to welcome her in fact that we've even breached our usual protocol of avoiding too many chefs in the kitchen by being all three of us present for this interview. Riley, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Chasmosaurs. Oh my goodness, that was such a great intro. Thank you so much. So good to be talking to you all. I think we've all bumped into each other in one way or another across the paleosphere over the years. So it's great to just chat. That's right. Yes, that's wonderful. Uh, Niels, perhaps you'd like to take the lead. Yes, of course. Now, um, Usually, we start our interviews on this podcast with the uh, same question, though uh, you, Riley, have already written plenty on the subject. Uh, nevertheless, could you tell us a bit on how you got into paleontology? Yeah, I have that classic story of having the child the love of dinosaurs. I remember being a little girl and going to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and I was five at the time. And I knew what dinosaurs were by then. I had plenty of books and models at home. But that was the first time that I felt like I really got to meet them, to sort of be in that presence, to feel like a small Mesozoic mammal next to some of these Jurassic and Cretaceous favorites of mine. <laughs> and that really, it just really solidified that affection. I had so many questions about you know, what the dinosaurs sounded like and how they moved and what they ate. And that affection was maintained over a number of years, but it wasn't until I got to college and I was frustrated by my coursework. I'd picked uh, an ecology major, which is a great and wonderful science, but the school that I went to specialized in wetlands, and I was interested in things with sharp teeth eating other things, and how that ecology worked. So I would go to the college library um, during the evenings, and I would pick out journal technical articles, books, whatever I could get my hands on, and I would write about it. And over time, that really rekindled a more formal affection for for prehistory, for fossils, I wanted to know more, and everything I found out led to something else. So it really was this sort of long fuse onto what became my career, that I always had that interest, but it wasn't until I really started writing about it that something more formal coalesced from it. I just want to get straight to talking about the latest book, to be honest. Sure, yeah, certainly. Because, of course, there have been plenty of art, sort of attempts at depicting the extinction of the dinosaurs artistically. And, of course, the fact that this book, at least in the... You know, before the appendix is written as a narrative invites comparisons with those attempts in film and so on i mean you, you, you can imagine the thing being adapted into a film as, <laughs> while you're reading it oh yes yes it's very vivid and i, I really um I, I thought it was a very effective way of presenting the information it's it's very dense with information but written in such a way that you are transported back there and a lot of it is very shocking um i thought in particular, one thing that will really shock people who are more used to this um, vision of a drawn-out extinction of the dinosaurs over, you know, a huge amount of time, is how sudden it is in in your book. How everything is over <laughs> very rapidly, and it's. I think what really struck me was this um, infrared, this, this pulse, this heat pulse that um, basically cooked everything that couldn't hide. Yes. I, I just wondered where this, where principally this idea had come from. Um, I'm sure you've put it in the notes in the book. We can all check it out. But uh, yeah, wh where where is this idea um, that it was that rapid and just cooked everything? Um, where where has that emerged from? Is that Do you really say that's almost a consensus view now? I mean, it's an unforgettable part of the book. Yeah, that was something that really surprised me as well. I remember 
growing up and watching a lot of the documentaries of the 80s and early 90s about non-avian dinosaurs and about the extinction. And I remember in particular the PBS show, The Dinosaurs, the one that had all those great animated bits in it. And they have a bit in the last episode, which was a very emaciated T-Rex kind of collapsing into this ash field during the impact winter. And that was the image that I often had is that the asteroid struck. Um, and then it was really the impact winter that did everybody in over time. I didn't really know anything about this infrared pulse that occurred. The focus had always been on all the debris and the dust blotting out the sun. But a lot of the modeling that's been done of the effects of the extinction and trying to correlate, okay, what are we finding in the boundary layer? There's all this basically charcoal and soot and ash. Like, what does that tell us? Where is that coming from? And there's a great paper that synthesizes a lot of this called Survival in the First Hours of the Cenozoic. I might be wrong. It might be Survival in the First Hours of the Paleocene, but I'm pretty sure it's Survival in the First Hours of the Cenozoic that really lays this out and really drove home to me through sort of synthesizing the research that had already been done, that the main driver of this extinction was that infrared pulse. I mean, the lack of photosynthesis and the impact winter were certainly important, and I try and bring that through. But for the most part, if you weren't underwater or you weren't underground during the first 24 hours after, air temperatures are getting up to be about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. It's more or less if you set an oven to broil. Wow. It's enough to make forests, like dry forest litter, or trees even, burst into flames. And so you not only had this pulse, but wildfires that came because of it. So really the bulk of this extinction, at least in the terrestrial realm, transpired in about 24 hours. And, you know, it wasn't a picnic for the next few years, the impact winter, mm -hmm. but it was incredibly sudden. And it really just struck me, like you said, it is shocking because most other mass extinctions that we know about, they're transpiring over immense time scale, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe a million or two years. These pulses that go back and forth because of volcanic activity and the consequences of all that. But this is like the one mass extinction that we know of where it really is that very small time scale that really that idea of this was the worst day that there ever was for life on earth this wasn't a million years of sort of grinding change that this was incredibly immediate and incredibly swift it does make you wonder about why that hasn't been explored more by other authors and other depictions um because as you say the typical images of emaciated tyrannosaurs wandering around like zombies and collapsing in the dust uh, that's how it's always been. I mean, you mentioned dinosaurs, but in other depictions as well, there's never really been this depiction, or I suppose it would be rather graphic for a TV show, maybe <laughs> one to broadcast later in the evening. But um, there's never been this idea of everything just being cooked in that way, which, yeah, so it was, it was a real... A little shocker. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, walking with dinosaurs, of course, had that big shock wave coming in. Certainly, yeah. And I know there have been some depictions that have been like forests on fire with like a running struthiomimus or something going through. But those moments would have been incredibly brief. By the time the air temperature was hot enough to cause many of these forest fires, like nothing, so far as we know, would have been able to survive that on the surface. I mean, they one of the estimates for what this pulse did was that it would have consumed the majority of any organic material that was exposed on the surface. So, and that's something that it's just so huge. It's so sort of all encompassing. That's kind of difficult to wrap your head around. It's like, you know, we can come up with these very dramatic and very pretty images, which I certainly love. But when you think about how fast and how devastating this was, where it's like, it's almost sort of a letdown. If you tried to depict it in art, mm. it would have happened that's so right. quickly that you have a matter of hours between T-Rex wandering around and basically everything turned to ash. I, I feel confident, though, that after this book, that we can reliably expect um, some new depictions in this vein. If not of the dinosaurs um, being uh, cooked alive, then then at least of, of the atmosphere, which, which as vivid as it is, is as you say, um, was both extremely... Uh, visceral and yet it's impossible to imagine at the same time while I was reading this because yeah, as, as you said it's, it's so cataclysmic in a way that has never been the world has never seen anything like it before it's so hard to imagine any such thing um, not even atomic bombs are comparable yeah I mean we've won the energy estimates it's usually ranked in terms of how many atomic explosions this impact and the energy dispersed from it could have equaled and what really struck me about the entire process was 
you know, often the asteroid enters the picture like right before it's about to strike. I can't remember how many times I've seen you know, an image like from space of an approaching asteroid or a comet, you know, getting closer and closer. And then you have the sort of depiction of, of the impact. So we treat it as if it were like almost right there hovering when in fact, the origins of the impact are probably date back to like far before dinosaurs even existed. And that to me is just so wild to think mm. about in terms of like the entire origin and diversification of this group, the fact that dinosaurs showed up after a mass extinction and were sort of allowed to diversify because of the end Triassic mass extinction, getting rid of the competition. Right. Like during all that time, basically their own, the cause of their own extinction is approaching somewhere out in space and they can't possibly have any idea. And just the scales of distance and time that are involved in this, it's really the small window into like, not just a global event, but really a cosmic event. Yes, absolutely. Uh, only last month were we talking yes. about a new piece of research that came out that um, sort of pinpointed the moment of the impact in what they called um, Boreal Spring. So even now we're still learning new yes. things about this event, but um as you said, Riley, um, the fate of the dinosaurs, uh, the fate of the entire Earth really, was sealed even millions upon millions of years before it even started, which is fascinating and adds yet another layer of what, what Nati calls uh, the tragic poetry of the whole thing. Well, I'm glad that phrase came through because that's what it was going for. Regarding the paper that Niels was referring to, I was reminded of that while reading the book because... Um, that paper described fish fossils containing these little uh, spherules, 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 yes. spheres, <laughs> these little glass sort of fragments that emerged directly from the the impact. Um, so yeah, of course, my mind was cast back to that. But I particularly love the um, the story of the Ankylosaurus, by the way. That was that was very vivid, and there it was. You you were describing the shocks that went through the the rock, the Earth itself, the way that it was deformed and um, it sufficient to throw things up into the air that were tens of thousands of miles from the <laughs> from the uh well not tens of thousands but at least thousands of miles from the impact site um it's pretty yeah pretty and that chapter stuff. broke my heart because it's sort of in the previous chapter i was trying to really bring dinosaurs to life and then i need to basically take them away from myself in the next chapter like this is primarily a paleocene yes. book and a book about the birds and mammals and frogs and lizards and ferns and things like that. So, you know, I felt like I was very emotionally invested in a lot of these animals that, okay, like now I get a chance to really think about how they would have acted and look like, and then almost immediately shuffle them off, off the narrative. <laughs> so it was definitely a few tears were shed during the process of writing this manuscript for sure. Yes. I can easily imagine that. It really drives home the, the feeling of, of missing the dinosaurs, even though you, you never actually knew them. Yes. That's something that a friend of mine often mm. calls me out on. I was like, Oh, I missed the dinosaurs. Like Riley never got to really know them. It's like, but I, I know, but I wish they were still here. Even if it means we probably wouldn't exist if, if they were. And yeah. I don't know if there's a word for this. Maybe there is, but it's this sort of kind of, it's a form of grief, it feels like. These animals that you share a fondness with, that we're so fascinated by, and knowing that we're never going to get to see them alive, but at the same time, to see them live, it requires yes. our imagination, our inventiveness, and our, our insight. And it's just this interesting inflection point. And that's something that I tried to call out in the beginning of of the book, because I know I often, it drives my editors mad, by the way, that I often have problems with tenses when I write about fossils. <laughs> because when you write about a fossil, you're writing about what exists now, but from an animal that was alive a long time ago. So sort of the present and the past tense are both relevant at the same time. And I'm constantly checking in on myself, like, am I talking about the animal? Am I talking about the fossil? How do they relate to each other? So like, in a sense, you know, fossils really defy tense we have to stretch our you know understanding and, and use of how we even speak about them because they are both here and not at the same time yes yes i think that that's a sentiment shared by by many of us absolutely in fact just as an aside i was going to say i liked how uh, you referred to the fact that they are gone but because they're gone they have inspired so much well, endeavor and culture. That's right. Yes. Um, speaking of that sort of personal, emotional angle, one thing that um, I think struck all three of us about the book is 
how intensely personal it really is. Yes. You very explicitly make the, um, the metaphorical link between the events that you describe in the book, which happened 66 million years ago, and events from your own life. So I guess my question is, Riley, did you set out to write it that way? Or did this aspect of the book sneak in along the way? I think it was something that I was always interested in in the very beginning. I knew that I wanted to write a book on this topic, particularly because I'd actually been asked to, or rather, you know, my interest was being gauged, but asked to see if I'd be interested in write, ghostwriting a book for another paleontologist about this extinction. And they had a very different view of the extinction than I did. And it's like, okay, well, I will do it myself. You know, I'm a writer. I can do this. And right. during this time was when the marriage that I was in, you know, 13 year long marriage was ending. I had just come out as transgender and I was just considering what my first steps in transition would look like. And this was during the time that I was right. pitching the book and really beginning to write it as well. In a sense, this book spans that time period from my own kind of KPG impact where just like in the space of about a day, a lot changed very fundamentally and very quickly. And I felt like the life that I knew and the world that I knew was just suddenly gone. And I had to think about, okay, what is, what's left? What's going to come from this? What's going to grow out of this? Because I didn't really have an, an idea in a personal sense, but I knew I wanted to tell the story. And mm. the idea of resilience, I think we often talk about the KPG event in terms of loss, just, you know, that we will never get to see, you know, sort of the descendants of Ankylosaurus and yes. Triceratops. But at the same time, I was just stunned that the world could go through something that was so devastating. And yet, in a relatively short amount of time, you have entire new groups of organisms showing up. You know, forests come back, mammals start to diversify. I mean, the fact that <laughs> primates were present for this, that you know, the oldest primates that we know about are as old as T. rex and triceratops, they made it through into the other side yeah. and that added another layer to the sort of personal aspects of it. So for me, it really was this grand scale story of you know, this moment where life flips and you're not entirely certain what's going to come after it, but being really struck by how resilient life is, how it can really blossom after the fact. And that felt very personal to me. And I was of two minds about whether to include it or not, but I felt like it was important to talk about because when we talk about science, and especially when I'm putting together a narrative, that's sort of what my personal view of what happened, and there are things that I might be wrong about. I wanted to say, like, this is where I'm coming from, and this is why it's important. And I kind of wanted to change the way that we talk about these events, not just as instances in the past that we just get the explanation and we kind of leave it alone, but what does that tell us about? survival and about the way that life can bounce back and the fact that you know even though we've had five and now possibly six mass extinctions that life has continued since the time it arose for billions of years like you know it's that famous jurassic park line that i wish i could stop quoting but it's just kind of so perfect it's like life uh finds a way and it really does it could have been worse john a lot worse. <laughs> i mean i was sat there at the weekend reading this in the pub and um this has already struck me at some point um because First of all, I wasn't expecting a book like this to be so personal. And it stood out even more for that, I thought. And especially because there were themes that at the moment I could quite relate to, and I'm sure a lot of people can, about having a massive upheaval in your life where something that you, you know, almost took for granted for a long time has been upended and it's Indeed. come to an end. Um, in your case, you were saying... Um, well, mm -hmm. just to quote, to quote you, um, years of my life turned to ash as something long dormant started to take root, which is a nice uh, link to those survivor, those early, early recovering plants in the earlier chapters that um, he said this was a, obviously a dramatic event to go through, but now a new life has begun. And it, it yeah, it really hit me, <laughs> that stuff, um, when I was reading the poem. Yes. As I said, I just don't... I don't expect that level of um, personal insight in a book about prehistory, I guess. So it, it was very remarkable to me for that. I think it's, I think, I know, I can imagine some people disliking it and thinking, oh, I wish they, you know, wish you would stick to the, mm -hmm. 
to the science or whatever, but I, I can see it equally, or if not more people, um, being like me and it really enhancing their experience of the book because it's, it's actually yes. proved to be useful insight for my own life as well as being a fascinating book about you know mass extinction and the recovery of earth so yeah i really wanted to um to applaud you for that and i know that i think the team wanted to say some more about that as well i think nobody but the most blinkered um could have missed that from the beginning this book uh, throws up immediate parallels uh, for our own times whether it's on ecological terms like climate change or on social ones and uh, we are in the process of recovery and returning to what we can't call normal any longer. Mm -hmm. We need to rebuild in a different way. Um, but, e but even uh, you know, those latter points aside, I, there are those personal echoes that you can't escape. Um, anyone who is aware of your own story or, or anyone who can draw any parallel with their own, their own story of, of personal catastrophe and reemergence. Um, Mm. essentially it's just as a rejoinder to what mark said i don't think any of us could have escaped this and it was uh as wonderful as the scientific aspects already are the uh personal elements that are detectable throughout just made the whole book that much more moving and i think it would be so for anyone but but the most hardened well you can fill yeah. in the gap yeah um it's like I said, I'm sure there are some people out there who are going to dislike it, but those people, um, you don't need those people as fans anyway. So. I mean, I, it always happens. It always happens with these books where it's like, oh, I wish you would have just talked about the science. But like, if, if people want that, there are plenty of very fine dinosaur encyclopedias and entire technical literature to go look at. And it's like, you know, this book is definitely something different. And yeah. I wanted to do something very different in that. You know, most paleo books, I feel like, and I've certainly you know written my fair share of any of these categories, are often historical or semi-autobiographical or sort of compendia of information. It involves a lot of telling. It involves a lot of, this is what we found out. This is what I experienced, and I am now telling it to you. And I wanted this to be more of an exercise of shared dreaming in a sense that, you know, let's go back and think about this yes. together. And I really didn't expect that it would have the relevance that it does. I started writing this in 2019 and you know, I was about halfway through when the pandemic lockdowns began. And on the one hand, I'm sad that so many can relate to it, but there's a reason that I started the book with the line, you know, catastrophe is never convenient because I think in one way or another, we are all hit to greater or lesser extent by really terrible days that you get that yes. phone call or that email. Absolutely. I think you've, you've hit upon something really universal here. Thank you. And, and that's, yeah. it's really a matter of scale. Yeah. That I know this is something that we are all familiar with. And it was one of those, like things can truly get absolutely awful. They can be hellish, but there is an after to it. And that's something that I reminded myself a lot when I was going through my own impact winter, that there's an after to this, that there is growth, that sometimes time really does make the difference. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't solve everything. But I was especially struck by what I learned, again, tying you know the science back to something personal about the way, for example, Paleocene forests came back and how they're able to be much denser than anything in the Mesozoic because you didn't have these big animals that were moving around and altering the landscape and pushing trees over. And it created this habitat that made more room for the survivors to diversify and pioneer new niches. And that sense of the diversification that life underwent not being this inexorable thing that life was pulled towards, but it generated itself from the inside. And how wonderful that is just through interactions or whatever of whatever was left that something new emerged. Right. And I thought that was really wonderful. Well, the, the, the metaphors just keep piling up, don't they? Indeed. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that you all said like you, you've noticed these themes running throughout because you know, as a writer, you, you come up with this idea, you come up with these stories and you put it on the page and it's really just you and maybe your editor or one or two other people who've ever seen this. So sometimes like some of these themes, like even just talking about it now and say like, oh yeah, I probably gravitated towards that idea because of something else. It's, you know, it's, we all bring something to whatever artistic works or scientific works we consume. And 
I really wanted to make that blatant in, in this book, that this is not me telling you about something. This is me sharing something. And I'm just so happy to hear that that's been resonating. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I think it need, leads us a little neatly on, in fact, um, because given um, what we were just talking about, uh, um, differing uh, audience reactions and, and how one should stick to the science and, and all the rest of it, we wanted to ask you, Riley, about um, mm -hmm. queer and feminist uh, activism and representation within the paleosphere, because yes. I, I'm very well aware that you get su such comments as, please stick to the science. Mm -hmm. We don't need to hear this, that, and you know. I, I see that happening to you frequently. Certainly. So let's ask you about that. Well, how do you, how do you deal with it? How do you perceive um, uh, these events, the, this kind of activism that you are very much pioneering um, taking place in the paleosphere? Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and also, if, if I may chip in, um, You've been in you've been in this business for a while. You've been fighting the good fight for a while. Do you feel that we're emerging the other end? Do you feel that we're making progress in in the paleontological community uh, in in this way as well? Great questions, my goodness! How much time do we have? <laughs> um, it's, it's something that I don't want to take credit for pioneering. There are certainly other people, especially queer paleontologists, who have come before me and organized sure. events. Of but course. I really, I felt like when I came out, I didn't really have a choice in that I had already been sort of in the public paleosphere for quite some time. I had written a number of books and all that other good stuff. So as much as I kind of hoped that I could like disappear for a couple of years and come back and reintroduce myself as, you know, sort of my full self, I felt like I didn't really have that option. So particularly as I was learning more mm. about myself and about these issues and sort of where I, how my relationship to science and the paleontology changed, I felt like I had to say something and draw from some of the people who had active examples for me and make the field more open and more welcoming just to everybody. Because here's the thing that we currently have. It's that diversity is getting better all the time in, in a global sense, in terms of different forms yes. of careers, people of different genders, different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Like in terms of just, I don't want to call them lower tiered because that's the thing. It shouldn't be a tiered system, but in terms of volunteers and students and early career researchers, the diversity is getting better all the time. There's still certainly work to be done. I know paleontology in particular has a very low percentage of black paleontologists involved in the discipline, and that's an area in which we need to continue to work. But there is motion, I think, in a very positive direction. And here's where we run into the classic problem for all sciences, but I think paleontology in particular, is that representation is one thing, and an end to systemic discrimination is another. So you still don't see all that yes. many women or people of color or transgender people really any marginalized community represented amongst the level of professor or curator there's still i think a sense of just to make the gender comparison or look through the gender facet of women's work for example that you often find that many lab managers or collections managers are women and they are wonderful at what they do but oh, the yes. curator of the museum or the department is usually a cisgendered white man and you know, that is not to say anything about their skill set. Yeah, you know, there are many wonderful people who are also continuing work against us. But when you just look at the numbers, this is the issue that we continue to have, that it's the system that we are operating in that keeps saying that we need more diversity, yes. but there isn't support for it. And I think that's the fight that's going on now and where I've been trying to re redirect some of my efforts, saying like, okay, like people are here, they're interested. I hear from people almost on a monthly basis were very interested or gotten to the field, but they're not sure where to go or how far they can go. And this is something that needs to come internally. So when I get some of those comments and people say, you know, science isn't political, you should stick to the science, it's just about the results. It doesn't really bother me all that much because in my head, it's like, all I want to say to them, you fail science, you need to go back and learn science over again. Because if you think that who you are and what your background is and where you grew up and aspects of gender and social class and all those things don't play out in science, you have entirely missed most of the history of science, that who mm -hmm. we are and where we come yes. from 
does matter. And that isn't something to denigrate anybody's background whatsoever, but it's to highlight the fact that we need diverse backgrounds. We need diverse perspectives, that we need voices to think about things in different ways. Even in terms of, I, I know I mentioned this on Twitter, I think yesterday, but how often the phrase, you know, dinosaurs dominated the earth came from. And it's hard to not hear yes. that in sort of very classic colonialist kind of ownership terms and projecting ourselves oh, yes. onto the dinosaurs mm -hmm. and what they were doing. Really, like, you know, plenty of people point this out in various ways, but that's kind of a meaningless statement that any animal group dominated something. It's a very human thing. And yes. that's not to say, you know, I'm not trying to police people's words, but it's more just think about that. Think about where these words came from. Think about the fact, for example, that Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was a eugenicist and had some really terrible views about things, came up with names like Tyrannosaurus Rex. And that doesn't mean that we should get rid of that name or anything like that. But there are connections here between who people are, what they study, where they go, who they collaborate with. And it's it's a form of transparency in a way. It's like we know these things are happening. We need to be talking about them. Yes. Now, um, Riley, the book is coming out soon. So um, what does the future hold for you? Are there more things in the pipeline? Yes. So I have been working on two, um, there'll be coffee table books, essentially. Um, so they're work for hire in that mm -hmm. I didn't come up with the narrative for them, but they're a bit more descriptive. One is called Deep Water, right. and that will be 50 entries on various forms of deep, deep sea life, uh, including some fossil friends. And there, there's things like Ophthalmosaurus and you know the idea that it was diving deep to go after cephalopods and whether or not that's, that's accurate and things like... I didn't know, for example, that vampire squid that live in our modern ocean have a fossil record going back into the Jurassic. So it was really fun to thread some of those things through. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And another one that's um, being made by an Italian company that will be a dinosaurs book, 50 entries, with some really stunning uh, paleo art in it about some of our favorites from the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. But the next narrative book will be the sequel to The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. I'm pitching now, and uh, I don't want to say too much about it just yet, but I'm thinking it will take somewhat of a hybrid approach between The Last Days of the Dinosaurs and books like My Beloved Brontosaurus. So using narrative, but also doing some on the ground oh, wonderful. writing, talking about museum collections and field sites and things like that about paleobotany, because we don't have a good paleobotany book. And really writing this book and thinking so much about forests and trees and plants and how all these things are sort of underwritten by photosynthesis, it threw up all these oh, examples yes. in my head of how we're still very much connected to the ancient history of plants that, you know, we are as much of a blue planet. We're also a very green planet and how unusual and wonderful that is. So I'm really hoping that that will be my next fossil exploration. I'll, I'll learn a lot because I know very little about fossil plants, but that's part of the fun is taking, mm. taking years along the journey. So with any luck in about two or three years, that'll be the next one, Michelle. Well, that's wonderful. Riley, uh, once again, your new book is called The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Uh, could you tell us, when is it coming out? Where can we get it? You can get The Last Days of the Dinosaurs anywhere that you would find books. So online at your favorite store or your local bookshop or even asking for it at the library. And if you want to keep up with my writing, you can find the latest at RileyBlack.net, but also on Twitter and Instagram at the handle Laylaps, L-A-E-L-A-P-S. And thank you so, so much for having me on. This has been a great conversation. I'm so glad that you thoroughly enjoyed the book. Riley, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been uh, fantastic. It really has been a, a real privilege. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks again for Riley there. Uh, that was a fantastic interview. And um, once again, the book is called The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. It's going to be out in about a month or so. So uh, go get it, go read it. It's uh, very good indeed. Um, one more word of thanks to Riley. Uh, actually, the last bit of the interview got sort of uh, messed up. So she actually showed up to re-record some of her bits, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. Yes, thank you so much. I, uh, I also want to add, really, um, uh, as much as, as reading audiobooks is something that I've always wanted to do, I have never wanted so much to read something as I do 
the last days of the dinosaurs. It, it's a pity that uh, that the audio version is already underway and has uh, and its reader has been chosen. Um, <laughs> not not that I at all fancied my chances uh, of, of being chosen, but nevertheless. Yeah, I just wanted to register just how much um, how much I really, really enjoyed this book. You could record your own version and distribute it and then go into hiding when the lawyers contact you. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah, yeah, that's a fabulous idea. That's going to work out great. Yep, what can go wrong? <laughs> also, uh, thank you, uh, Nati, for the image of all three of us standing around the Chasmosaurus cauldron like a, a coven of witches. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I just wanted to see how far I can extend the uh, too many cooks in the kitchen uh, idiot. Well, we're a coven of witches now. Who's who's the maiden? Who's the mother? Who's the other one? Uh, uh, we'll have to decide that another time, I think. Yeah, maybe we can draw straws. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, it, the my my uh, news item this month made me think because I'm aware um, of. How many how many ties there are who follow our Love in the Time of Casmosaurus page on Facebook, but I don't know how many of them, if any at all, actually listen to the podcast. Um, so it would be interesting to know, actually. Um, on that note, though, I do want to thank everyone who has um, left feedback of any sort. Um, we have, as far as I know, a, a small, uh, happy few. Who, who always enjoy the podcast and always have something very kind to say. And uh, thank you again so much. Um, it's, you know, as we've said before, it's what keeps us going. Um, and yes, this is just another word for uh, to encourage you. If you do have kind comments to say, or, or even not so very kind ones, let's uh, steal ourselves for them. If you do have anything to say, of do course. let us know. We are grateful for feedback always. You know, even if, if you have constructive feedback... Or if you want to say something trollish, yes. I don't mind that either. I'm quite happy I to read hate mail. I, I'd rather not have trolls, you know. So if you have something trollish to say, then don't email us. Email, you know, email your favorite paleontologist. They love getting email from cranks and trolls, wasting their time. Just, you know, email them with whatever your uh, trollish thoughts are. They'll, they'll, they'll welcome it with open arms. The views of Mark Vincent do not necessarily <laughs> represent the views of Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus as a whole. It's um, it's good to have some regular listeners, so thank you. I never thought there would be any. I thought, you know, people would listen to one of these. Maybe the one where I was drunk through the whole thing and just uh, turn off straight away. So it's good that we've got people coming back time after time. <laughs> So yes, uh, please do leave us uh, some uh, some comments uh, on whatever platform we're on. Thank you all for listening. Um, it's it's been a great one. Go get Riley's book. Go read the show notes, and uh, we'll hope you tune in again yes. next month. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.